0: Welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today in our Europe Cinema Series, I am joined again by my good friend Flag Taylor. We have been doing a series of movies on communism, on totalitarianism more generally, and today we have a special entry. We will be talking for the 35th anniversary about the Chernobyl disaster. In 2019, Craig Mazin made a very successful HBO series about the 1986 catastrophe that was as close to a nuclear holocaust as mankind came during peacetime. At the same time, part of the terror is the secrecy, the systematic Sovietic lying about what happened. People heard about Chernobyl because radiation was spotted in other parts of Europe in unexplainable ways. It's not how you think about nuclear energy, but it is part of the explanation of the terrible fears we have around this. That science has created something that could wipe us out. This was a great terror in the 20th century. This was the thing that changed the liberal mind about the power of science. After the atomic bomb, in the age of atomic energy, the question whether our powers are at all under a wizened moral control became urgent. And for all this, the disaster of Chernobyl has never really been treated cinematically. It may seem shocking, but in another way, perhaps it makes sense. It is a really dangerous thing to deal with. It's very hard to do well. You have to deal with the Soviet regime. You have to deal with the incidents starting on 26 April 1986, the terrible dangers and the way they were averted and the greater dangers thus created and how they were averted. And also, you have to give people a sense of the human involvement. Who did these things? How did these Soviet politicians, scientists, down to everyday workers that nobody remembers, but some of whom actually sacrificed their lives to save a good part of the USSR, of what is now the Ukraine, Belarusia, and some parts of Russia, to say nothing of uh, the rest of Europe. The story is a blockbuster, but it is a real event, a real happy end, and it is also a warning about the terrible character of Tyranny. All of these things come together in the HBO series made by Craig Mazin in 2019, Chernobyl. So, Flag, thanks a lot for joining me. I know of Chernobyl because of you, because of your wonderful review in Law and Liberty, and I figured that since it is the 35th anniversary of the disaster, we should finally talk about it.
1: Yeah, it's great to be with you again as always, Titus. I enjoyed the series right when I came out and um, you know, watched it again after you had proposed we do an episode on it. And uh, yeah, I'm continually struck by the skill of the director and writer. The performances, I think and Skarsgård as Sherbina was wonderful. Jared Harris as Legasov is is terrific. Um, In my view, the series is really a story about their relationship and the evolution of their friendship. These are the two men who proved to be decisive in meeting the challenge of dealing with the aftermath of the explosion. And so it's great to be with you, and, and I'm excited to get into the series. In
0: preparation for our conversation here, I also was curious, how did this do? What did people think about this? It's been two years since the series came out, and I'm happy to say it was a tremendous success. It was a success with critics, since it's a TV show, a miniseries rather than a movie, it does not go to the Oscars, but it does the award circuit in uh, Hollywood. It goes through the Writers Guild, to the Producers Guild, and then the Globes, and it had nominations and victories everywhere, and then to the Emmys, where it simply swept. It was in for 19 awards and won 10, something like that. I think it did very well in England, at the BAFTAs, and elsewhere. So uh, critics loved it, of course. It was all over the press at the time. But what do other people who aren't critics or in the business, what did they think about it? So I just hopped on IMDb, and I saw that in the TV list, Chernobyl is number five. And if you discount the top two, which are documentaries, how feel-good programming wins is, I think, not hard to explain. There are only two other shows that people liked better than this. One of them is Band of Brothers, the miniseries about Normandy, about D-Day, which is completely understandable, and uh, then Breaking Bad, which is applauded as the greatest modern crime TV show. So it's a remarkable company to be third after these things. Chernobyl has done great. More than half a million people went on IMDb to say this is the best thing ever. Now, perhaps not one of those 500 something thousand people is a great judge of the matter. But altogether, I feel they give a good sense of the opinion of the Internet, of digital America, since that's who goes and votes there. And in a way, it's a wonderfully American story. The man who wrote and produced this, which is why he has these Emmys, Golden Globes, and whatever other words now, is called Craig Mazin. Before Chernobyl, he was writing ridiculous sequels in Hollywood. He was writing scary movie sequels. He was writing hangover sequels. He was making all these loser movies. But all the time he had something in him that somehow wasn't possible to do in the 90s or 2000s. But since we have changed in certain ways how we think about cinema, we are now doing all these novel-sized stories in miniseries. He got this opportunity and he really knocked it out of the park. It makes a career. Most writers, most people in Hollywood do not get the chance to do this. And, you know, maybe they're not able to do it. But this guy, he has achieved something impressive.
1: Yeah, he really has. And um, I, I was impressed with that. I mean, it, the series really draws you in right away. They don't postpone the explosion until the end. The explosion comes right away and they try to show you the chaos and kind of gradual disbelief and confusion that reigned both at the reactor itself and the surrounding area initially. Then the effort to kind of cover it up and pretend it really wasn't as bad as it was. And then soon the scientist Legasov from this famous Kartatov Institute in Moscow comes and realizes he suspects that the explosion is worse because he reads a report, he discovers graphite on the ground. And if that's the case, he knows that graphite is something that is used inside of the reactor. So if there's graphite in the ground, then the reactor is actually open. It's not just a leak. And so we pick up the story with Legasov trying to convince people in the Central Committee that they need to go and investigate this and deal with the reality as it is. And so the series does a wonderful job of showing you this tension between the ideological dictates of controlling information, of not allowing the West to figure out that the Soviets would make such a crazy mistake with their reactor, and then how those ideological demands butt up against reality when people within the party soon realize that they have to take their bearings from what's really happening on the ground And then the series does a wonderful job of showing the genuine heroism and in some sense competence of people to respond to the disaster as it actually existed. And so you have some unlikely heroes, some of whom are miners, you know, some of whom are people who are sent to clean up after the disaster. And so although you don't have the dramatic tension throughout the series that you did in that first episode, the series does show you how the aftermath of the explosion created its own challenges. And so once they are successful, successful in putting the fire out basically by dumping sand on the initial explosion that creates new challenges because then the fire burns hot underground. That fire threatens to overheat the water that was left in the tank. So then they have to empty the tank. So that turns out to be a challenge. Then it turns out the fire will continue burning underground, right? And so they have to figure out a way to decrease the heat as this thing smolders. So then they need to bring in the miners to try to deal with that challenge. And so even though the series shows you the Soviet system and its sort of hyper bureaucracy and ideological demands, how they kind of suffocate people's, or not suffocate, they sort of blind people's access to reality, and it creates all sorts of dysfunction. It also shows you how different people responded in a pretty impressive way to the challenges that that were put before them. It's not purely a kind of dark portrait of how communism and, and the bureaucracy you know, created this mess and made it much worse than it otherwise was. That's probably true, but it also shows you genuine heroism and people who are willing to speak the truth and try to make people respond to the truth in a meaningful way.
0: Yes, I think you're right. There's a remarkable interest on the part of the writer to show you how did human beings deal with this, It is a catastrophe that could have happened, I suppose, in any nuclear plant, but was especially likely in Soviet plants because of the corruption of the regime. And yet, that is a regime that lived for the lifespan of a man. It's in its dying years. This is 1986 already. We're three years away from 1989, the end of communism in Europe, 1991, the full collapse of the USSR. But people at the time did not quite know that what they know is that there is so much corruption so much incompetence that there is so much cutting corners so much lying about how things are done or should be done or what can be done or what is being done these things are lied about too it's a kind of hell of human making that robs people of their humanity and yet people have to live there in some ways people must have been able to deal with this stuff before you get to have a terrible nuclear accident you have to make nuclear plants After the nuclear accidents, we see that these people do have the remarkable resources to deal with it. That in a way, only in a moment of crisis do the resources of the Russians come out. For once, necessity is so terrible and urgent that the system can't get in the way and in fact wants to solve the problem. At this grand political level, Chernobyl is a reflection on the character of the Soviet regime. Gorbachev at some point said, in hindsight, I think that's the thing that really destroyed the Soviet Union. Because it shook the notion that Soviets can have technological control, that Soviets can achieve great things industrially. The regime wiped out its credibility. But you also see in the show that things could have gone another way had the human powers on display in solving this terrible catastrophe been allowed to rule, to take control of things, to help out. And so you see this strange picture of heroism and decadence of a regime that is not only wicked, but in a strange way, suicidal. Mm -hmm. The series starts with the night of the catastrophe, and it ends with a show trial, which ends up including some truth about what really happened. We get a reconstruction of the events of the day leading to the night of the disaster. And in between, as you said, we see crisis after crisis. Every time these people solve the nuclear Armageddon problem, it comes back in a worse way. And they have to do it again. And they've just bought another day. They've just bought another week. And even once they get it under control, they still have to do these dangerous and terrible things to make sure tens of millions of people or more aren't in danger. And so there is this terrible fear hanging over things. How will they solve it? And at the same time, there is this possibility, or at the rate, the question, how will the regime deal with this? What will these people learn? It's Gorbachev, it's glasnost and perestroika. There's got to be some kind of transformation of totalitarian communism. Somehow they have to react to this problem. What are they learning from this terrible crisis? And what they're learning, turns out, in this heartbreaking way, to be that uh, we have to go back to lying systematically and terrifying people. And there you see, that's what decadence means. Even when you're faced with a crisis, even if you allow for a minute or a month some solution, if you allow reality to dictate what you should be doing, it doesn't last. The institutions aren't in there. The habits aren't there. The virtues are not there. And instead, all these terrible vices are in command of people and of events.
1: Yeah, We should maybe just clarify very quickly the flow of the series. So as I said, the beginning, you get the explosion, and then the responses to that explosion, as you suggested, create their own challenges presenting new problems, and those problems have to be met. And so you have initially the need for three men to go into the tanks and empty the water tanks by hand. There's no other way to do it, so they have to go into this radioactive water. And then you have the heroic miners who are brought in to dig a large cave. Underneath, so they can put this cooling system in. And then I guess that must be after the third episode, it turns into um, preparation for a trial. The three key figures who were working at the reactor that evening are put on trial and punished Yatlov, Brukhanov, and Fomin both Legasov and his fellow scientist, Homiok, who is an invented character who's supposed to represent this large batch of scientists who help Legasov deal with the aftermath. They discover that the reactor actually exploded after the emergency shutdown protocol was issued. They first of all decide, well, that's not possible. They must be lying that they pushed this button because if they pushed the button, it should have shut down and there shouldn't have been an explosion. Well, they figured out that it was possible and it has to do with a design flaw. And so then the series in the last two episodes turns into this kind of meditation on whether Legasov will have enough courage to say out loud at the show trial that, yes, these three men who were put on trial are incompetent and they should be punished. They brought the reactor up to its breaking point. But then actually one of them did the right thing and pushed the shutdown button and it exploded anyway. Is Legasov going to have the courage to actually say <laughs> that uh, quiet part out loud at the end, that in itself is kind of interesting, because for all of Legasov's courage and skill in dealing with the aftermath, he comes to recognize his own limits in the course of the series. We can talk more about his relationship to Sherbina which I think is the most wonderful part of the series. But he understands his own limits also as a kind of moral actor. So there's a real question whether he'll have the courage to do what he, you know, he thinks he should do That's at the end at that trial. Yeah,
0: that's, I think, very well put. This show is a combination of two elements that you almost never see put together. A blockbuster disaster movie thriller. Part of it is a scientific legal procedural, like a court drama.
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: It's a very unusual combination, but it does speak to what was involved in Chernobyl, that the urgency of the moment demands decisions of you, guesses that summon your powers, moral and intellectual and political, and the strength and the commitment of all these people involved, as well as the terrible wickedness of people who are threatening to make things much worse. They can't stop screwing things up, even in the midst of this danger the entire human drama, and it's incredibly gripping. But once you get it under control, the questions change. All of a sudden, it's trying to understand why did this happen? You want in some way to make sure that you don't bet on heroism and the touch of genius at the drop of a hat. If at all possible, you'd like to prevent something like this. And so this question comes around to the trial. Was it some kind of problem in the system, or was it that there were some men there who were bad or incompetent? And the answer turns out to be both. The system was preparing catastrophe and the people in charge of it were also preparing for catastrophe without either realizing it. So this is why this is such a meditation on the problem of Soviet communism, this kind of bureaucratic tyranny. It's supposedly under full control of everything because everybody's on procedure, everybody's under surveillance. Wherever you look, there is some KGB guy or there's some other political guy, some apparatchik from the Communist Party looking over your shoulder. Everything is supposed to be accounted for and under control. But on the other hand, what happens if this rule by fear gets people thinking that there are no real problems in reality? There may be real problems from the KGB, say, but not from, you know, reality. And the trial does a very good job of explaining how did this terrible technical problem happen. Every step. What is this silly human mistake How could people be so irresponsible, on the other hand, about something so dangerous as nuclear power? There are all these aspects of the matter presented for you after you've seen the previous four episodes and you're coming to a conclusion about this. It's very well done dramatically to wrap with this trial. It exposes the corruption of the regime and also the terrible problem itself. Communism went up so decadent that it could no longer face reality. We should also tell our audience that this is a very Russian story. It ends with the hero. It starts with the hero committing suicide.
1: Right. I left that detail out. Yeah. Like
0: this is not (laughs) your Hollywood movie, but it is a very gripping drama. As you were saying, this question, that seems so technical. Did these three people push that button, the shutdown button? If they did, you know, the system is at fault. If they didn't, then they're at fault. And so this simple question of a damn button, this damn failsafe system, turns out to be an indictment of the entire regime. But of course, you can't simply judge a situation by a failure. You also have to ask us, what would competence have meant? What would it mean to do well in the given conditions, without wishing for impossibilities? It's a very realistic show. This is not a fairy tale. And at the core of it is this relationship, as you say, between a politician, an apparatchik who has gone very high up in the bureaucracy, Sherbina, and on the other hand, this scientist who himself has achieved a high position at the Nuclear Institute in Moscow, Legasov. They start with the enmity that you can expect from the political and the intellectual types. The intellectual is sarcastic and frustrated that although he knows more, he's not in charge. The politician is suspicious that this guy who thinks he's such a no -er however, has never had responsibility over anything. He doesn't know what life and death mean. They learned to trust each other by risking their lives together. You see that for all the evil of communism, these people had to go there, live in the radiation, essentially sign their own death in a few years to fix this problem, and they were willing to do so. And because it's a real story, these people really did it, you can see that there was some good in them, some nobility trying to save all the people that would have been wiped out had this been a catastrophe.
1: Yeah, I think this gets at the broader theme that makes Chernobyl worth watching and worth thinking about in light of the pandemic, and that's just the power and limits of science. I mean, first, we can say that the scientific disciplines, mathematical disciplines would have been attractive for many talented people under communist regimes, right? Precisely because people rightly thought that they could find a a refuge from politics and ideology, at least partially. And so it's no accident that you find many talented people like Andrei Sakharov, for example, who, you know, went into these disciplines. And so the series treats the power of science and the importance of science and the relationship of science to truth as one of its guiding themes. And it does it in an interesting way. But it also, and I'll let you talk about this in a moment, you know, yields to some sort of pieties and cliches that we can criticize. But so you have Legosov as the man of science and sherbina as the political man. As you say, the relationship starts off very rocky because Legosov, thinks rightly that the political system is behaving totally irresponsibly and is not responding the way that he thinks it should. sherbina distrusts him because, as you said, he doesn't understand the realities of power. But over the course of the show, you see, rather, that they develop a genuine fondness for one another. And what I think the show does particularly well is that it shows, through the evolution of Lagosov that Lagosov understands his own limitations in terms of his own scientific mind because he knows that science can't to move human beings to respond to the reality of the situation. Science can explain what is happening and why what is happening, you know, will prove disastrous for human life. But it can't force people, it can't move people to act in response to the crisis. And so you see this in the wonderful scene in the second episode um, when they realize that even though they've smothered the fire from the explosion, that the thing is still going to smolder. And oh no, the tanks, the water tanks, again, are full. If that water heats up, it's going to cause a subterranean explosion that's going to be utterly disastrous. And so Legasov and Sherbina go and tell some of the workers, look, we need three or four people to go and drain these tanks and it has to be done by hand. Who's willing to do it? And Lagasov stands up and says, well, here, here's the reality. We can give, uh, you know, 400 rubles to each guy who's willing to do it. And they all look at him like he's crazy, rightly. This one worker says, you want me to go down there after, you know, you idiots have fouled this up? Why would I do that? And Lagasov just looks utterly defeated. And he realizes, well, I can't, I don't know what to do. Sherbina stands up and uh, responds to the guy, you'll do it because no one else can. And if you don't, millions will die. And if you tell you that's not enough, I won't believe you. This is what has always set our people apart. A thousand years of sacrifice in our veins. Every generation must know its own suffering. I spit on the men who did this. I curse the price I have to pay, but I'm making my peace with it and you make yours go into the water because it must be done. And guess what happens? Three men raise their hand because they recognize the wisdom—I don't know about wisdom, but at least truth—of what Sherbina is saying. And so you immediately see that Sherbina knows how to move people to action. Legasov doesn't. And so Ligasov, I think, in that moment realizes, "Oh gosh, I need me—the truth-telling scientist—needs Sherbina." And so I think that's just an important theme that is explored throughout the series.
0: Yeah, this apparatchik becomes a very impressive character. He's a strange guy because he's aware of his own mediocrity. He's tried to rise through the party ranks. He's achieved success more than most Soviets can hope for. But he also knows that nobody who has power in the USSR has any respect for him. He has this great existential moment when he tells Legasov, Do you know why I didn't think this was a real problem? Why I find it so hard to believe you? It's because they put me on the job. Yeah. I know what these people think of me. Right. And, you know, maybe they're right. Maybe I'm good for nothing.
1: He says, I'm an inconsequential man, Valery. That's all I've ever been.
0: You know, that's a tough. tough yeah. thing to think about yourself. What a way to go through life. But at the same time, he can look at things this way only at the moment when he realizes that he is sitting on Armageddon and every time they fix it, it comes back again. Right. He's not inconsequential anymore.
1: Well, Legasov responds to him right away and he says, are you, are you kidding me, Boris? Of all the ministers and all the deputies, they mistakenly sent us the one good man. You, you are the one who mattered most. And that's a revealing comment from Legasov because, again, he's recognizing that you are the one who actually got men to do things. You are the one who arranged for the you know million tons of sand that we needed. You are the one who got the robots that we thought might clear the material off the roof. You were the one who ultimately got the miners and convinced them. And so the, I guess the other comment I would make about this is that, yes, Sherbina understands his limits and understands the fact that for most of his life, he's been a party mediocrity. But this also shows you, right, that that doesn't determine him. Sherbina's behavior is not determined by party ideology. It's not even determined by his past behavior, by his past mediocrity. He somehow, for whatever reason, and because of the reality of human freedom, right, you you probably can't know, but but he responded rightly and decisively when they needed him to in this moment. And Logosov is grateful for that and recognizes that sort of all his science, all of Logosov's science and understanding would have been for naught without Cherbina. So that moment near the end of the series is a really touching moment and kind of puts a cap on their friendship. Yeah, this is
0: perhaps the most important thing about him, that he was despised for so long, perhaps because he's not a Soviet guy at heart. He's despised for a kind of weakness that turns out to be a terrible love of his people and the willingness to risk his own life and to ask other people to risk their lives alongside him. That moral authority is indeed something that our scientist really and truly lacks. Legasov is by no means a bad man. He is also there knowing Better than anybody else, that he has signed his death warrant the moment he took the job. Every moment he stays in that radiation zone, that's your death coming to you closer year by year, hour after hour. But he does it because it's the thing that you have to do. He has a certain courage, but Sherbina has more power and he has this moral authority over people, which puts him in a unique position. He's more of a man of the Russian people. He shows the part of the Russian people that is, in a strange way, admirable. It's strange because, as you quoted him saying, it's just, we suffer generation after generation. There are some admirable things about Russia, but it's not the land of the free. Yeah. (laughs) But it is a kind of home of the brave. It's just so terrible, so punitive. It's just so fatalistic. It does, for that reason, I think, teach us something very important. Sometimes you have to reconcile yourself to necessity even though it's personal suffering, even though you might not get any kind of fame or reward for this. And Sherbina is the man for the occasion. We cannot stress this enough. These are two real people who really did this. It's not made up. It's not simply for the sake of storytelling. It really is the case that even in the Soviet Union, at the crucial moment, this politician and party guy and this other man who's a scientist, they came together and they helped fix this problem. They didn't do it all by themselves. That's a necessity of movie making. There were hundreds of people involved and thousands in in high positions and low. But without this leadership, it would not have been possible. As you say, the scientist realizes that in some sense, the man of action is the more important not the thinking intellectual scientific guy. Because you need people's trust and you need to do things at the right moment. Even knowing as a scientist what has to be done or what the problem is, is not enough. Yeah, That's the importance of the reality. It's not that we, the audience, could wish them a success through the power of the box office. (laughs) This is a real story where success came because for all the corruption of the USSR, there were limits on the evil. And one of those limits was what happens if an explosion in a nuclear plant might wipe out life on a significant chunk of the eurasian landmass
1: right right and i guess connected to this capacity of Sherbina to move men to move human beings to action we might talk about a couple of the middle episodes where some interesting decisions were made in terms of what to include about the aftermath and so I, i mentioned the miners the miners are really interesting and they're brought in to again dig this cavity underground so they can put this cooling unit there and we're introduced to them, you know, when they're on site and in their mining site. I think somewhere in the Urals, I, I don't remember the the site, but some you know minister of coal goes to visit them and tells them that they need you know a few hundred men to come to Chernobyl. And we're introduced to them as they're on some sort of break and you know smoking and drinking vodka and telling jokes about Soviet ideology. And then they come to the site and uh, Lagasov says, well, how do I talk to these people? And, you know, I've never talked to a miner before or something. And, you know, Sherbina says, yeah, they'll know if you're lying. So you might as well be straight with them. And sort of the head miner is a great character. He's kind of this bulky, straight shooting guy that just has no tolerance for BS. And he's handed a mask as he walks in and he says, do these things work? And Lagasov says something like, yeah, they'll help you. They'll help a little bit. And he says, well, if they did, you'd be wearing them and I don't see you wearing them. So you're sort of immediately drawn to this miner that responds to this crisis because he knows, you know, it'll probably save lives, but does not put up with the BS about what will help his personal safety. And of course, it turns out to be 400 degrees in the uh, <laughs> in the cavity. And he complains, you know, they can't bring any fans. Well, if they bring fans and that'll spread the radioactive material around. So what are we going to do? It turns out the solution is to do what miners... Use used to do, you know, a century ago, which is to do the work naked. (laughs) <laughs> and, of, and we we see these guys mining and underground naked and the Gossop and Shurbina come to the site and, you know, are just kind of stunned. And the bureaucrats are wondering, what should they do? Should they make the miners wear clothes? And, you know, it's just they just sort of surrender, like, no, let them do what they want. So that's a wonderful scene. And then maybe I'll ask you to comment a little bit about the curious scene in the fourth episode where we're dealing with the aftermath of the explosion and the reality that all the land and houses and animals who have been contaminated have to be dealt with people have to be evacuated. But then you have basically these pets running around and all these animals have to be put down. And so we're given what that must have felt like from the perspective of this young guy, Pavel, who probably is 19 or 20. He comes to the site in Ukraine and, and is put with uh, these guys who are soldiers in Afghanistan to put down these pets. And so we sort of see the aftermath of the explosion from this young guy, Pavel's perspective, who has to go around and, you know, shoot dogs and cats. And it's sort of an interesting choice that makes and made, I think, in order to tell this tale.
0: There's a lot of the necessity that the crisis imposes on them, but there's also a lot of the misery of life in Russia. I think that the meaning of episode four is a commentary on the Afghanistan war. The Soviets invaded this godforsaken mountain desert. It's something maybe America should have learned from. There's a reason we call Afghanistan the graveyard of empires. There were English imperialists dying there 150 years ago. This is not something we should be repeating, but like the Americans recently, so did the Russians. They invaded that place. And so you see a veteran of the wars giving the teaching about the cruelty and the meaninglessness of it all that you have to go through shooting and killing. That's very much like the Soviets killing the people of Afghanistan and the recent Middle Eastern wars. For what? What is the, the, there's something terrible about this stuff. It's very well portrayed, but the scene that shocked me in that episode, I guess in the whole series, is one of these young Russian soldiers, fresh-faced boys straight out of boot camp, who has to evacuate people. To begin with, they evacuated something like 100,000 people like that. In one afternoon, with a few hours announcement that morning, everybody just went. They were told it's temporary, more than 1,000 buses came up and took everybody away. That was this little town right next to Chernobyl, the plant. Then they had to evacuate 100,000 more, and the third 100,000. And so at some point, they get to people in villages. And one of these fresh-faced boy gets to an old lady who is milking her cow.
1: Well, that's the opening scene. I forgot about that. The opening scene of episode four. That's right. Yeah, it is uh, astonishing.
0: Because this lady looks at the soldier who's, uh, who could be her grandson, She's 80 and she says, do you know what I've seen? The 1905 revolution, the 1917 revolution and the Great War, the Nazi invasion, the Russian counter invasion, all these terrible things, generation after generation, parents and then sisters and brothers and children. In between, she, she mentions the Holodomor, Stalin's awful murder of millions of Ukrainians through starvation. She says, do you think I'll ever go away from this? The soldier just shoots her cow. He's got orders. He throws away her pail of milk and he shoots her cow. And you know what you understand that that milk is now radioactive. But this is an eighty something year old woman. What do you think your orders can achieve anymore? But there's this one moment to receive this history of twentieth century Russia, this litany of horrors. Oh my goodness, it's all true. Yeah. <laughs> so what did you think about the soldiers and the the, the shooting the pets that are going feral?
1: Yeah, I guess it just Mason wanted to show you, you know, the aftermath necessitated a kind of, I guess you could call it a saving cruelty. But that wasn't an easy thing to do. This young Pavel that has put together with these two soldiers, you know, the soldiers have seen a lot of, of suffering. The guy who would served in Afghanistan, particularly, and talks a bit about how you can try to get used to killing, but it's pretty difficult. But it just sort of shows you how shocking it is for Pavel to walk around and try to kill a suffering and defenseless animal. I mean, the guy says, usually when you walk into these villages and whistle, they'll come running because they're hungry. So they're they're running up to these guys expecting a little food and then they get put down. And and so I I just think he's he's trying to show that the magnitude of the disaster was such that it necessitated these responses that were necessary but were themselves awful. And there's lots of footage, too, of burying both people and animals and putting concrete over the bodies of these animals. And it's, it, you know, it's, it's almost like we want to put this underneath us and get out from under it. But as the scene with the old lady suggested, right, there's just so much suffering and brutality that's been layered upon layered in each of the decades of the 20th century for the Russians, the magnitude of it all is just hard to contemplate. And so the response of the lady is just, well, I'm, you know, this is just one more thing. You are telling me that this nuclear explosion is going to be worse than what I experienced in the Holodomor, right? I mean, I, I don't I don't think so. And so I, I like that aspect of it. Maybe it just gave you a different perspective from which to think about the disaster. And although at first it's, I think it's kind of off-putting, I guess I would say ultimately I think it works and it, it enabled Mason to introduce some pretty interesting minor characters into the mix.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. You you see that there is something senseless to this violence and at the same time that there is something terrible in the world. Nuclear power, this radiation doesn't go away. It's hot without burning. It gets into the animals. It gets into the plants. It gets into the ground. It could seep into the groundwater below and poison river after river. And uh, last year in 2020, there were The most terrible fires around Chernobyl, in that part of Ukraine, there have been in generations, and that again meant a lot of radiation went up in smoke and off into the wind into Europe. It's still there. It's unremitting suffering, and there is a certain confrontation with that side of life that is, of course, terrible for Russia, but other people are mortal too. There are miserable sufferings happening in other places too, so it's incredibly important. I think the best thing about it is showing that certain hopes that people entertain about liberalism, about the transformation of the end of history, what have you, are simply ungrounded. People live with these histories, with these generations, these terrible things. You are not going to transform those people overnight. Their good and their bad, in a way, is settled in them already. And that's a very powerful lesson. Yeah. And so there is this other side of liberalism, which is horrible, right? You know, you see the suffering of people. Terrible, terrible thing. Like how do you think people die of nuclear radiation? Chernobyl will teach you. You will see it. But when it comes to dogs, you can't shoot a dog. Always done off screen. We have to hold something sacred. Mm-hmm. Somebody think of the puppies. Right. Oh, my God. What has happened to people who are so sentimental about animals, but with human beings? Ah, they even want to see the atrocity, so to speak. I would rather people have more cruelty for animals and much less for people. I'm mostly on the side of people. <laughs> people first, animals second. I think we should remember that. But it's a minor problem. You know, The best things about the show teach you something about Russia, about the history, about the character of the people, about the misery they suffer. A lot of it is the worst evils ever done by the communists. But there was evil before that. There's a certain hardship and a certain misery there. It's not a happy place now. You can just go on Wikipedia and look at the average lifespan of Russian women and Russian men. It is shocking for the men. That is a reality that all the nice things that liberals can say will you know can't wash away. It is a terrible truth. And in the show you see many of these things that sober you up, that teach you to be a bit more serious. Just like overall trying to show you that Soviets for all the evil did deal with this. Shows to you that you have to understand the full moral complexity of the problem. Yeah. That is the greatest thing about the show. Just like the seriousness of a real problem. One threatening explosion and occurring explosions after another. How did they deal with it? But there are certain defects with the show this sentimentality especially that seems to have poisoned liberal storytelling. As you suggest that they made up an entire superwoman scientist feminism figure to stand in for all the scientists of the Soviet Union. (laughs) And just think about that transformation. And in reality, there were all these people, some of whom risked their lives, but all of whom did very important work on a very urgent basis and helped save a good part of the world. And on the other hand, you have a fairy tale princess who's going to achieve things through the superpower of being a bossy woman. It is disgusting that people could do this. This kind of sentimentality is awful. And then if you think further, this crazy ideology that super scientist female is going to save the world. Really, you think that that's the problem with Russia? They didn't have enough bossy women in the scientist position? You know, it reminds me of this horror that I grew up with. In, in Romania, this terrible Stalin-like tyrant that got shot on Christmas Day 89, Ceausescu, his wife was known as the chemist. She was supposed to be a super scientific lady, and she was the uh-huh. horrifying tyrant of the nation. She was, in certain ways, worse than her husband. It's a famous last order uh, when the revolution started in Bucharest, 21-22 December. It was ordering that the people who got beaten up, around arrested by the political police, the local equivalent of the KGB, should all be shot dead. They only survived because by dawn, the tyrants had been abducted and then executed in secrecy by who knows who. That's how that ended. I don't necessarily think that Barthi ladies in a communist tyranny are a good idea, is what I'm saying here. But you know, she's a woman. She can't be bad like men are in this show. I'm not sure you understand the problem with communism if this is the level of HBO, you know, awards winning storytelling. There is something crazy about this. And as you suggested, just think about the situation we are in now. Leave aside communism. We have had a year of pandemic that's not just killed billions of people, but wrecked countries, families, lives, economies. What part of human life has not been worse because of this? Where were all these super scientists who are going to save us because they are the heroes? This crazy kind of storytelling makes its appearance in Chernobyl too. It's largely under control. It seems like maybe it's something you have to do for the HBO audience, okay? I mean, they're liberal, but they pay for these movies. They get to have some of their nonsense fantasies show up. Mostly, however, it's a very good show. You just get this weird problem. Maybe we should have the hero worship of the super scientist guy who screams at Gorbachev, the super scientists who make tough faces at the KGB. This is childish. But it reminded me of the fact that uh, back when the USSR was a real thing, Liberals were almost unanimously cowards of the most hysterical kind. When you had people who were getting tough with Gorbachev, like Reagan, they were all scared of the nuclear Armageddon and they were saying, oh my god, he's a warmonger. And they were all sure that the USSR would never end. That Reagan is some kind of stupid child with his moralistic ideas about we win, they lose, it's an evil empire. But the second the USSR collapsed, all of a sudden all these liberals became, I told you so, I knew that this was like the, we we're going to win, science wins, okay, it's science. And now you get to see it in this show too, the scientists are beating the politicians. You get to scream at Gorbachev, you get to make faces at the KGB chairman. Really, how many liberals were first of all against the KGB and secondly, you know, being brave about it? <laughs> So it's quite childish and I, I found it hysterical because I was born and raised in Eastern Europe and uh, I have a rather different opinion about all the terrible things that communism did in this part of the world. You, you live in the aftermath. That's why I appreciated the last couple of episodes in the show. I didn't see communism happen, but I lived in the aftermath. And all these things that won't go away, that are still there, that are still poisoning millions of lives and entire regimes... That's what you see in this show. Metaphorically, uh, there's a teaching about how the hell did this political decadence play out? And the terrible power of these things poison life even long after they're done. (laughs) Yeah, that part is very, very true. That's why I'm against this liberal sentimentality and this cult of the scientific hero who's going to save the world. If the epidemic has taught us something, they don't save anybody. They just destroy societies. They're still cowards. But if you can get past that, you can see that this is what it means for entire regimes to be poisoned by ideology.
1: Yeah, I agree. I, I was not as repulsed by the homeoke character played by Emily Watson as as you were I guess I'm sympathetic to the idea that it's hard. It might it might have been hard for Mason, you know, to create a bunch of characters who would have stood in for all the people who helped Legasov you know, try to figure out the reality of what was going on and how to respond to it. So I, I guess I'm not I mean, I'm sympathetic to the idea that we'll create one character, but I I guess I agree with you that she comes off as just so pure. She's put forward someone who has a kind of conscience that Legasov doesn't quite have, and she's the one who kind of gives him the courage at the end to do the right thing. And, you know, I think that was a bit much for me to take, too. She's just too pure and more of a caricature than almost any of the other figures in the series. But I think it was good choice, at least in thought, to try to have another scientist with whom Legasov could converse right But it wasn't. I think you're right. It just wasn't. It wasn't well executed. And it comes off as this weird combination of kind of science and moralism. The truth will set you free. And thank God that Legasov, as a character, as we've talked about, doesn't seem to stand for that at all. Quite the opposite. I mean, he comes to recognize quite quickly the limits of his own powers.
0: Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm likely much harsher on these things than the audience will be. As I said, this has been a, such an amazing success, and I would add, unique. Nothing like it has been done about Chernobyl, and so I am four square behind it, recommend it. If there were some way to sort of improve these problems, I could quibble a little, but it's just a wonderful thing altogether. The other thing that it set me thinking about was this hero nuclear physicist from the Soviet Union who is against the system and who wants science not to be politicized and who's for human rights. There's a name for that guy. As you said, Andrei Sakharov, the famous Nobel Prize winning physicist, dissident guy from the 60s and 70s, whom, of course, Sojenitson spoke up in favor of. They were both the most hated men in the USSR, this Christian humanist and this scientific humanist. There's probably a story to be told somewhere in there. And you're right that there is something to be said for truth-seeking. In a lot of communist countries, going into a career, if at all possible, in the sciences, in any branch of knowledge, was some way of escaping the continuous lying, the propaganda stuff, the nonsense that poisons your mind, your reflexes, your habits, how you talk to your children, how you talk to your friends, how you behave everywhere. It's pervasive. It's horrible. But you could know in the sciences, this is a true thing. I know one thing which is true, and there is demonstrative knowledge, we are human in some way, and there is a dignity in having minds that work. The reason, we are not simply the slaves of these lies. Had they made even more of this importance of the sciences to teach you what demonstrative knowledge is, as opposed to the bullshit and the lies, I would have been all for it. It's the silly moralism that I'm against. And of course, the generation in between Sakharov and Legasov and the fact that Sakharov, although exiled and and doing very brave, very dangerous things, protesting the injustices. Here you have this Nobel-winning physicist protesting outside of courtrooms where there are show trials for dissidents (laughs) to try and uh, get some news out at risk to himself. Uh, You see that science did have a kind of status in the Soviet Union. They didn't just kill Sakharov because he was too important as a nuclear scientist. And so there was a kind of hope that maybe the Soviets could become somewhat less terribly corrupt. And nevertheless, these terrible Brezhnev 70s were not quite as bad as the Gorbachev 80s, as we see in the fact that Legasov killed himself. He was so immiserated by the fact that he couldn't tell the truth about what has to change. He couldn't do anything to make these nuclear reactors secure, that he just killed himself, and it was his suicide that made the difference. Word got out. The scientific community was shocked and then shocked into awareness of the problem. It did make a difference. You see, this is a very Russian story. Mm-hmm. You want to be a truth teller? You want to be the truth to power, intrepid journalist, sassy scientist woman? Actually, it's this guy who committed suicide in despair. That's how things changed. This terrible human cost is incredibly sobering. Life has this terrible side to it. Here, one weird thing that they didn't make enough of in the show that I think should have been much more emphasized: there were four reactors working at Chernobyl, two further in construction. Construction didn't stop because these people were working to prevent Armageddon. The other three reactors did not stop; they were decommissioned in the nineties. It started with one of them going through a terrible fire. <laughs> they did not stop. That too is part of the way things are. Those reactors produced something like 10% of all of the electricity in that region of the USSR and the Ukraine. Mm. You can't stop that. What are people going to do? The 80s were a bad time. Everywhere, actually, in communism, we had rolling blackouts, all sorts of stuff. You didn't have a lot of power, a lot of warm water. Yeah, they couldn't stop those things, even though there was radiation. Right. That terrible side to it, it's all really and truly there. It happened.
1: Yeah, the Legasov character, as you said, we see him commit suicide in the opening scene of the first episode. And he is dictating, you know, notes, presumably about the flaws and the reactor and perhaps other notes resulting from what he's experienced as a result of the aftermath of Chernobyl. And I assume that this is true, Then you see him take these cassette tapes and kind of put them outside of his apartment building in a great I assume some of these other scientists learned about some of the details of Chernobyl and the design flaws of the reactor through these cassette tapes that would have probably been copied and passed around. But I think you're right. It took his um, I hadn't reflected on that enough, really, that the series begins with that. It it took his suicide in a way this I don't know, you could say his suicide is a kind of um, self-assertion triumph over necessity by bowing to necessity almost right. The act of killing yourself. Taking what nature is going to do on its own and placing that in your own hands, that sort of action always strikes people as so shocking that it has to be paid attention to. You see examples of this, right, in lots of different political contexts. Agnieszka Holland's burning bush with the young Charles University student who burns himself, immolates himself at the top of Charles Square. You know, these suicides are what, for whatever reason, get people to pay attention to things that they couldn't quite bring themselves to look at squarely. And so Legasov's suicide, you've convinced me, is a more important act than I'd considered. Maybe it's just because it's the opening scene. And so by the end of the five episodes, you kind of forget that that's where you begin. But it, it, I think that's really crucial. Yeah,
0: you move from this one lonely man in his room to the whole terror of the explosion. And so you tend to forget about it. But then, yes, it really happened as well. He recorded these cassettes. That too is real. So we have this strange juxtaposition of the truth the man told and what it took to get it heard. He had to kill himself. That is to say he had to prove one last time that he cared about the truth more than about his own life that's right that is a very important moral statement and I think a sobering reminder of the limits of all political community to persuade people that the truth is the truth and that it is important takes terrible
1: sacrifice and I assume you're you are very moved by the moment he does remember to fill uh, his cat's food bowl because we don't want any cru- cruelty to <laughs> cruelty to animals so. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, we must remember something. People is Read precious. Feed the cat before suicide. Exactly. Right. Treat your pets right. That that's morality. Well, I suppose to some extent we all feel like pets. We have all been prisoners. So you know what right. the hell. This sort of graveyard humor is. I feel terrible, but fitting for a Russian story. <laughs> <laughs> a tad cruel, a tad sentimental. But you know, it's sometimes the truth hits you in the face.
1: Is there any humor in the? I guess the the miners the minor scene of course so much yes interest. those people are
0: hilarious their joke they, the jokes funny, funny they talk yeah. funny they're tough rough and yeah they those people take no bullshit so that's where you see the fun stuff in right. the story
1: uh, other than that yeah i don't i mean obviously you're not you wouldn't necessarily expect it in a, but you know kind of comic tragic sense I mean, I actually thought the other funny scene, funny because it's just so horrifying, is when Sherbina, they try to put this robot on the roof to clear the radioactive graphite on the roof that is, you know, it's so radioactive that they don't think, you know, anyone could stand it for more than 30 seconds. So they get this machine from West Germany, right? The West Germans have built this machine that could handle this level of radiation. And the machine conks out, you know, after 10 seconds. And why? Because the Soviets gave to the West Germans the propaganda number about the level of radiation that was being. And this just sends Sherbina into this frenzy of anger. And it's funny because he takes this phone and smashes it and says, God damn it, they gave him the frickin, you know, propaganda number. Why would they do that? Those frickin idiots. And then he picks up the phone. And he just smashed and he hands it to his little assistant and says, we're going to need a new phone. And then he walks
0: away. (laughs) Yeah,
1: that's hilarious. And
0: again, you see, right? I mean, he's he's screaming into a phone at some politician at the end of the line in Moscow. But that's a truth that just can't get heard. He's just so furious at that futility that you're in this sort of situation. You know, the tech West capitalism is going to help you out, but you lie to them about what you need for propaganda reasons. It's so pervasive, you know, so despair-inducing. It's funny, but it's also terrible. That is Russian humor.
1: All of it is graveyard humor. He's just pushed to the end of his... He's just been pushed past his breaking point. He's just, I can't believe you did this.
0: Oh, yeah, exactly, because he's the guy in the story who always remembers there are people in Moscow, there are 200 million people in this Soviet Union. You gotta keep this in perspective. And he has this remarkable ability, like the show, to say you need three men to risk their lives in this terrible radioactive infested water or else we're creating this horrifying radioactive explosion. Those three men have to go there and turn those valves. The destinies of so many millions and this sort of catastrophic thing on a planetary scale, but three people need to go turn valves. Or in the control room of Reactor 4, there are three people doing this crazy thing that leads to the catastrophe. Nuclear power, the Soviet Union, the 20th century, science. Also, there are three people in the room who are in control of this thing. It's remarkably good at this putting together the human scale of things and the terrible implications. Just like Sherbina and Legasov. Sherbina says one day to his superiors, okay, my scientific advisor has persuaded me we will need all the liquid nitrogen (laughs) in the USSR to cool down
1: the melting core. How much do you need all of it?
0: (laughs) These sorts of things happen. It's this grandest scale, these things that just boggle the mind, the numbers. And on the other hand, these two people have to do it together. And uh, the show is remarkable for that, reminding you that human beings have to deal with this. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, they, they did pull through, so it's not all like, it's not all catastrophe. Yeah. So the, in that sense, it is humanistic. There, there is so much terrible stuff, but it also reminds you of the importance of human action and the possibility of moral and intelligent people fixing that thing. Mm-hmm. So I think although it's a nuclear disaster, we're managing to end up on a pretty high note fairly happy yeah this is in our totalitarianism communism nazism series a rare achievement (laughs) so i'm very happy that we managed to do this (laughs) (laughs) all right flag thanks a lot for joining me and again thanks for writing this review and getting on my case to see this show the wife and i loved it and we recommend everybody watch chernobyl it's a wonderful show
1: Yes, thanks for having me. I agree, and yeah, I hope it... I mean, it seems like it's already got a pretty wide audience, but hopefully younger people will, um, will watch it too. Yeah,
0: exactly. And you and I will be doing this again next time. All the best until then. Thanks, Titus. Pleasure. Bye-bye.